John chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the, olders, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Lord, we open up our lives to you now. Probably some of us able to pray something like, God, my, my life is a blank canvas. Would you paint on it a masterpiece? And probably others of us able to say, God, if you're there at all, then make yourself clear, because I'm tired of trying to figure it out. And many, somewhere between the two. But to whatever degree we can, honestly, we open our inner lives up to you now. We still ourselves before you. And I ask God, Jesus, who I've walked with all these years, would you come and walk with each of your children today? Just one more step in a way that they can feel you beside them, leading them, guiding them, speaking to them. And it's in your name I ask this. Amen. So there's this woman thrown down face first in the dirt right at the rabbi's feet. A few minutes ago, she must have been so carefree and alive, smiling and hurrying from her house to his, the way that she always did in the early afternoon when her husband was at work and her kids were off at school. On her wedding day, she must have never thought she would end up being an adulteress, but here with him, that's the only place that she feels like herself again, the way that she used to. And then the priest walked in on them shamed her publicly, used her as a prop to discredit Jesus, tore her out of her bed, marched her with a fist full of her hair in his hand down the streets of Jerusalem, right to the temple, threw her down in the front of the crowd and said something along the lines of, the law says death penalty. Stone her. Are you gonna disagree with Moses? Now this was the perfect trap to wedge Jesus right in between the people and the law. Uh, she's lying there wrapped in nothing but a sheet, her cheeks pressed against the dirt. The carefree thrill of a few minutes ago has been replaced by a heavy blanket of shame as she's thinking, how long have they known and who else knows? And who's gonna pick up the kids? Will they bring them here? Will they show me to them like this as some kind of warning? And what does it feel like when they actually stone you. Jesus, of course, doesn't say anything to the question right away. He frustratingly stoops down and then just starts drawing in the dirt. I imagine close enough to where her head was lying that she could hear his finger tracing through the sand. And then when the silence is hung heavily enough for long enough that the priest is about to fill it himself, Jesus stands up and says, all right, sure, stoner. Just make sure that whichever one of you has no sin is the one who throws the first rock. Plop, plop, plop. She had to have flinched when she heard the first rock hit the ground, right? 
But it didn't take long before she realized they're not throwing stones at me, they're dropping them at their own feet. And after every other, every accuser had walked away, she finally looks up and she sees Jesus and only Jesus. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And I love this story because it's the story that she would have gone on telling forever. The moment that she wanted to hide from everyone forever becomes the moment she'll never stop bringing out of hiding. Because the moment of her greatest shame became the moment of that grace and mercy got to run deepest in her life. This is the kind of author God is. He's not one who edits. He's one who repurposes and then redeems. But what would have been impossible for this woman to know at this moment, still stunned by this sudden intrusion of love, is that the real fight for her life has just begun. Because the real fight is every ordinary day after the transcendent memorable one. I mean, Jesus still surprises us with the sort of mercy that tends to sound cliche until it comes after you, right? We can dismiss a thousand other people's stories, but then when love picks the lock of my heart and kicks down the door and makes its home in my story in a way that unravels me, suddenly I'm defenseless. It's an I'll never be the same again kind of moment, and then somewhere along the way, the passion of that divine encounter wears thin, and the love that wokes us up now makes us drowsy. We've all likely got a woman caught in adultery moment or two in our own past. Uh, Sometime when we were profoundly reshaped by this love that came after us. But it's all the days after the passionate encounters, the fidelity that we find underwhelming and disenchanting. The exhilaration of the mountaintop spiritual experience wears thin and we're just dragging our feet along the narrow path behind Jesus, mostly distracted and mildly bored. There are highs and lows in the spiritual life. There are euphoric, wonderstruck moments, and there are pits we find ourselves in we think we'll never come out of. But the most common condition that's in any seat like this one on any given Sunday is just a general malaise of spiritual boredom. Ronald Rollheiser says, the greatest obstacle to sustaining a life of prayer is simple boredom and the sense that nothing meaningful is happening. That does not mean we are regressing in prayer. It often means the opposite. You see, the real fight of all of faith is all the ordinary days after the climactic moment because of what we all know but typically don't come right out and say, and that is that fidelity is boring. I mean, fidelity is rich and satisfying and it meets the deep needs of the human soul that the, in a way that the surface urges can never touch, but it's also boring most of the time. And so we're left with a few equally bad options for riding out the remainder of our spiritual life after the breakthrough. We either go through the motions uh, passionless and half pretending, or, or we try to manufacture the breakthrough moment again. We try to somehow get back to the way we felt at first, even if I've got to manufacture it myself, even if I know that I'm manipulating myself on some level, or we just wander away disappointed. Admitting that intimacy with God left me somewhere short of satisfied, so I guess I'll go looking somewhere else. And so here we are, mostly busy and bored at the same time. Spiritually bored, but we're also so constantly distracted in this perpetual state of exhaustion. Welcome, my friends, to the spiritual condition of the modern world. Now, we prefer to think of ourselves as modern people with modern problems, but the truth is that fidelity is the oldest, truest story. The Bible is not a rule book or a set of directions, it's a love story, a romantic, courageous love story that you're invited to believe. And you can behold that whole story in a single moment, like when this adulterous woman was thrown down at the feet of Jesus. But you can also equally behold the story if you zoom all the way out to view the meta-narrative that God's been authoring since the day he hung stars up in the night sky. All the way back at the very beginning, on the Bible's opening page, after separating light from dark and land from sea and filling the earth, God parades the animals in front of Adam one by one, tasking him with naming each of them. Why stop the show for an animal parade before introducing Eve into the mix? Why is Adam forced to name the animals right between the creation of man and woman? Because God is letting Adam feel his own deep longing the longing for a counterpart, a companion, a bride, in the language of the New Testament. See, by naming the animals, Adam, who was made in our divine image, 
is allowed to feel that divine longing that lives with him. And then after God has let Adam feel his created state, his incompleteness and longing for the intimacy of love, he creates a woman out of man, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, a counterpart, a bride. But of course, fidelity is boring. And so it doesn't take long for that climactic moment of poetry to become the slog of ordinary days and Adam and Eve both choose a lesser love, ripping a seam right through the whole story, destroying the intimacy. God's recreation plan is then essentially a re-up on his original intent. Uh, he starts redemption of the whole human race, again, with one couple in love, Abram and Sarai. And God makes a covenant to them, I love you, and I will keep on loving you no matter what. I am not striking a deal with terms and conditions. There is no benefit on my side. I'm forging a covenant. All that I ask is that you accept it, that you take my love. And Genesis 15 says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So taking God at his word, receiving his covenant love is righteousness on God's scale. But then throughout Old Testament history, Israel's unfaithfulness to God is frequently depicted as adultery or as infidelity. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and the book of Lamentations all describe God's people uh, as those who are unfaithful to his covenant or those who actually never take his vows in the first place uh, as being uh, sexually unfaithful to God, going after other lovers. Many times the accusations are a whole lot more sultry than most of you would be comfortable with me reading in this moment. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes our union with Christ through the imagery of sexual intercourse. You're welcome for bringing that up this morning. All to say, this theme of a loving covenant between God and his people, it's not a passing metaphor. It's, it is one of the primary biblical themes through which we understand uh, God's plan for redemption that's traced throughout the whole of the biblical narrative. To fully redeem the intimacy that was lost in infidelity, God then places his divine being in the womb of a fallen woman. God becomes bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It is the author turning back to page one to redeem everything that's gone wrong. Uh, in the Last Supper then, Jesus slides a glass of wine across the table to his disciples, inviting them to drink. Now in first century Israel, this is the way that a, a potential groom would propose to a potential bride. They didn't drop to a knee with a ring the way that we commonly do in the modern West today. Instead, the way it happened is friends and family would gather, the groom would slide a glass of wine across the table. Now if she drinks, she says yes. If she doesn't, she says no. Jesus, on his final night, his final meal with his disciples, slides a glass of wine across the table and says, drink. And at the end of that very meal, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus here is referring to a coming wedding reception. The final page of your Bibles, Revelation 19, it is not a catastrophic apocalypse, it's a wedding reception. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So here is the mission of Jesus. The wound opened up by infidelity is mended by fidelity, a love that will never give up. On the final night of his life, Jesus said to his disciples just before sliding that wine glass, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love, remain, fidelity. But how do we remain in that love? I mean, how do we make love this complete more than an occasional comforting reflection, but the setting before which the scenes of our lives play out? Uh, the emotional floor that we feel from and the understanding that our thought patterns run in cooperation with. How do we keep choosing Jesus on all the ordinary days after the breakthrough? How do we remain in that love? Prayer. Because prayer is about love. St. Augustine, uh, arguably the most respected theologian in history, writes, true whole prayer is nothing but love. More recently, Johannes Hartel, who operates a house of prayer in Augsburg, Germany, said it this way, if you can't love, you can't pray either. Praying is loving, and learning to pray means learning to love. 
Now, of course, love between people, it comes easiest at first and at last, right? There's that honeymoon stage of early infatuation where you're touchy and talkative and smitten. And then there's that old couple for whom love has become as natural as breathing and their union just seems effortless. But all those years in between, love in the midst of building a career and raising kids and establishing a life and falling apart, those are the years that love has to be worked at and fought for. Those are all the years when love is won and lost. Those are the years when that early infatuation is cultivated into that elderly couple in effortless union. And just like love, prayer comes easiest at first and at last. For sinners, first bumping into Jesus and for saints who have walked with him for decades, but all the years in between are the important ones. The years when early spiritual euphoria and divine infatuation is matured into effortless union. Prayer is about relationship, and that means fidelity is the only container within which it can truly flourish. Teach us to pray. The disciples asked Jesus that question once. But what they were asking him was a loaded question, because watching Jesus pray was like watching the closing scene from the movie The Notebook. You know the one I'm talking about. When after all the twists and turns of young, passionate, infatuated love, Rachel, or I'm sorry, Ryan McAdams, man, you guys know. The two people, the celebrities, the great looking people. So unified you can't even get their names apart at the end. They're just an elderly, plump old couple like anybody else, right? And then he slips into her hospital bed as they're dying side by side and what had to be a medical malpractice and <laughs> slips his hand into her so they can fall asleep one last time together. Now everyone who's ever seen this film gets a touch misty-eyed in this part. I'm not pointing the finger here at me or anyone else. <laughs> simply making a general observation. And that's because it pulls at our God-given longing, right? We all want intimacy and companionship. But there's also a reason that the writer and director of The Notebook chose to spend the entire film showing scenes of the early infatuation kind of love and then skipping to the elderly couple in love at the end. And it's because the decades that exist in between that, the fidelity, it's the boring part. The disciples saw Jesus pray and, and, and they noticed something. That the same thing that happens to us when we watch the final scene of that film. Everyone who sees the final scene of the film says, that's better than anything I've got. I want that. The disciples saw Jesus pray and said something like, that's better than anything I've got. So teach me the kind of prayer that leads to that. And Jesus responded with what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that one. You've likely heard it before. And that prayer was scandalous in its intimacy. Jesus was making prayer so intimate that the priests began to squirm and get uncomfortable. But Jesus was also doing something which would have been obvious to them, but likely lost in the majority of us, reading this thing a couple thousand years later and in a completely different cultural climate. And that is that the Lord's Prayer is not entirely original to Jesus. I know. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't something that he just rattled off spontaneously. It certainly seems like Jesus is adapting the opening lines of the Kaddish, which was one of three important prayers that was recited daily at the Jewish temple. That prayer sounds like this. Magnified and hallowed be thy great name in this world which he created according to his will, and may he establish his kingdom during your life. I mean, look, I'm not trying to accuse you of anything here, Jesus. I'm just saying that's plagiarism in the college I went to. How about you? Fascinating, right? Jesus is adapting a common, disciplined Hebrew prayer from the temple and then making it much, 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 much more personal for personal people in search of a personal God. Teach us to pray, and Jesus responds, pray to God more intimately than you think you're allowed to because this whole thing's about love and center your life according to a disciplined rhythm of prayer because fidelity is where love flourishes. Jesus was saying, here's my secret, pray with the heart of a lover and the discipline of a monk. That's how you choose fidelity. And when you do, it quenches your desires in such a satisfying way that everything else becomes the boring part. When officiating a wedding, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously offered this bit of advice to a young couple at their wedding. 
as they're standing in front of him. Today you are young and very much in love and you think your love can sustain your marriage. It can't. Let your marriage sustain your love. See, what he was getting at is that for this love, this passion you feel today, this breakthrough to flourish, you gotta put it in a container where it can grow. Prayer is about love, and that means it cannot be sustained on fluttery feelings, good intentions, and spontaneous moments alone. It needs a container, something like the fidelity of a marriage, a set of practices or rituals within which it can grow, mature, and blossom. And that's not a new idea. Woven throughout church history, from all the various traditions, from modern church history all the way back to the church's inception, there's always been a daily prayer rhythm that held God and his people together. Again, Rollheiser writes, we show our fidelity to God in our, not in our feelings, but in our commitments. So we must recover a sober, unromanticized, committed view of prayer that's aimed at the deeper desires within us that prayer makes its appeal to. Only then will we have the stamina for fidelity. Only then will we experience the love of the elderly couple hand in hand lying in the hospital room. So the way to pray like Jesus taught us includes this unavoidable invitation to a daily prayer rhythm. Historically speaking, this is the drum that God's people have always been beating. Pause to pray three times a day, morning, midday, and in the evening. Psalm 55, as for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. This is the central plot point of the book of Daniel. Daniel refuses to renounce prayer to Yahweh in a Babylonian culture. He's living in a foreign place by allegiance to another God. So he kneels before his Jerusalem facing window three times a day to pray according to the prayer rhythm of his home, not his exiled place. And that is the offense that gets him thrown to the lions. In the New Testament, Jesus himself observed a daily prayer rhythm. Every single gospel contains descriptions of Jesus withdrawing for set times of prayer. Now it is important to note that not all of the instances of Jesus praying in the gospels are according to the Hebrew rhythm of prayer. It, that rhythm did not include moonlit all night hikes of prayer, for instance, which Jesus did. So Jesus does pray spontaneously, but it's equally important to note that Jesus did pray according to a fixed daily rhythm, that the overwhelming historical evidence is that Jesus attended the temple three times a day to pray the same morning, midday, and evening rhythm that we see in both Daniel and the Psalms, and many of the biblical references to Jesus fall into that category. Jesus prayed both spontaneously and rhythmically, alone and with others, pouring out his emotions spontaneously and guided according to set prayers at set times in community. Turn to the book of Acts and you'll just discover that the earliest churches continued to anchor their communities by the same shared prayer rhythm that Jesus walked by with his disciples. Acts chapter three. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Acts 10. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. Acts four, on their release, meaning their release from trial, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Have you ever asked yourself, how do the apostles keep on getting everyone together day of in a big city in a world before cell phones or email? The most likely explanation is they were already gathering together to pray at set times in the day. Beyond Acts and into early church history, this trend continues. The earliest recovered non-biblical document that details church life is called the Didache, which among other things details the morning, midday, and evening prayer rhythm that grounded the life together of the early church. Scott McKnight writes extensively on this in his book, Praying with the Church, if you wanna get deeper into the history. But for our purposes today, what I'm trying to show you is this. A three-part daily prayer rhythm was the anchor to early church life. But there's a whole lot more than just rugged faithfulness to that anchor, there's supernatural power. Because when we pray with fidelity, expressing our love to God, the power of God seems to more or less just accidentally get thrown in as well. Go back and read the book of Acts and just highlight every reference to as they were going to the place of prayer and then see what follows it. Let me just take you back to the exact places that I've just referenced. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John exercised the first miraculous healing post-resurrection on their way to midday prayer. 
In Acts 10, Peter received a vision that the gospel is not just for Israel, but for the nations while observing his midday prayers. In Acts 4, the foundations of the temple shook in response to the church's ordinary prayer gathering. So for those who may be keeping score, the early church had a higher commitment to prayer than we commonly do today, and the early church had a higher experience of the supernatural power of the Spirit than we commonly do today. Might there be a connection between the two? See, when we pray expressing our love to God, the power of God tends not to be far behind. So if it's intimacy with Jesus you want, plant your prayer life in a container of fidelity. And if it's the Spirit's power that you want, plant your prayer life in a container of fidelity. A shared daily prayer rhythm was just the assumption of the early believers for three centuries, and then the Roman Empire fell, and along with that, the church buddied up with political power for the first time in history. They went from oppressed minority to quite a popular group. It seemed like a great victory at the time, but the church lost its saltiness through that same power in the language of Jesus, and at that time, they lost a taste for prayer. Christians continued to pray, but what I mean is their prayer life is then meant to be supported entirely just by spontaneous prayers of the individual and not by the anchor that the community centers their whole life around. The first monasteries were founded in response to this in the fourth and fifth centuries, and there were simply groups of people that wanted to continue to order their lives the same way that Jesus and the apostles did. The first monks, who we know today as the Desert Mothers and Fathers, were just people that said, we want to continue living the common way of the early church, including the daily prayer rhythm. So here's what I'm getting at. My suspicion is that when the Apostle Paul wrote, pray without ceasing, that he had in mind both a constant state of interior being, practicing the presence of God, and a committed communal rhythm of fidelity. He meant commit yourselves to fidelity, pray like monks. And as you do, love and power will bloom together from within you like a band of wild and unruly monks. So I'm advocating that we recover one of the church's most historic practices that's been mostly forgotten in our time, a daily prayer rhythm, morning, midday, and evening prayer. The early church, as best we can tell, prayed some version of, in the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer, at midday, pray the Shema, and in the evening, pray the Psalms. Again, that's as best as we can tell. There's no way to nail this down exactly historically, but there's a whole lot of historical and scholarly evidence that shows that we've got some version of that rhythm alive in the first three centuries. The early church were formed and empowered by prayer. They gathered at set times to pray prayers that reformed their hearts, uh, reshaped their world, and empowered their mission. Modern believers, though, we typically have an aversion to set prayers at set times uh, or, or rhythms of prayer, which are typically called offices, and that's because we tend to confuse spontaneity with authenticity and to confuse rhythm with ritual. And that's rooted all the way back in the Protestant Reformation when the former was missing and the latter was abused. But even Martin Luther, who led that very Reformation, cautioned, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. In his own writings, he counsels to hold on to set prayers at set times, mirroring the early church life. And more recently, Eugene Peterson has said, the repetitions of our Lord's prayers give us firm groundings for the spontaneities, the flights, the explorations, the meditations, the sighs and the groans that go into the prayer without ceasing toward which Paul urges us. You see, in the modern church of the West, there tends to be this bias toward spontaneity and a resistance to rhythm. But we don't have to and we shouldn't choose between the two because true freedom and spontaneity is born from rhythmic practice. And in this way, prayer is a whole lot like jazz. Uh, because a saxophonist in an orchestra is seated with perfect posture, staring at the sheet music as they play the instrument, right? A saxophonist in a jazz trio is playing the same instrument, but they've got their eyes closed and their back arch feeling the music more than reading it. The interesting thing about jazz, though, is that in order to play it, which is entirely improvisational, you have to have such a firm grasp on the instrument that you're able to improvise in that way. In other words, if you want to play jazz, you've got to learn the sheet music first. And if you want to pray with passion and spontaneity and power and expression, you've got to learn the sheet music first. A committed daily prayer rhythm and a life of passion and effective prayer, they go hand in hand. And so we've designed a modern rhythm based on that ancient one, the Bridgetown Daily Prayer Rhythm. Morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. At midday, pray for the lost. And in the evening, pray gratitude. 
That's not our new twist on the old thing. That's just an attempt to take the essence of the old thing and apply it to a new time and place where people didn't all memorize the whole 150 Psalms in grade school and don't all have the Shema etched onto their doorframe. Now, this has absolutely everything to do with love and absolutely nothing to do with legalism because the daily prayer of them is and has always been about fidelity. Jesus' observance of discipline was always about freedom in life. When Jesus rolled out of bed before the sun and went off alone to pray, it wasn't a spiritual scorecard he was trying to keep spotless that drove him there, it was love that drove him there. He wanted to be with the Father, and so he prioritized a way to do so. This is Philippi Park in Tampa, Florida, It's a photo that was taken from a local newspaper in the 1970s. My wife, Kirsten, tracked down this photo uh, from the newspaper, had it framed, and gave it to me for our 10-year anniversary. And of all of the gifts that I've ever received in my life, this one is without a doubt my favorite. It hangs right by my bedside. And that's because after my family moved to Florida in high school, this is the place that I found myself walking and talking wide-eyed with Jesus. This waterfront park, it was situated right alongside my commute home from school, and so often, several times a week, I would stop as a high school kid on the way home from school and just walk and talk with Jesus on the shaded paths of this park. Now, I've got stories of prayer walking with a mission. I've told you stories of intercession and intensity and fire. I know the powerful prayer of more than I can ask or imagine, and I know the wide-eyed risk of prophetic prayer that becomes awestruck wonder in the end, and I also know the prayer of fidelity and love. And on those afternoons in Philippi Park, I did not want anything from God. I had no plans I was asking him to sponsor. I had no needs I was hoping he would meet. There was no motive, there was no agenda, no list, only love. I wanted to be with the Father. So I walked and talked and listened. And now a couple decades removed, I suspect that those afternoons were God's favorites. Because on those weekday afternoons, it wasn't about changing the world or getting God to act the way that I thought God should act or, or even meeting my own issues or needs in some way. There was no function. There was only love. And mature love definitely includes planning together, intentional conversation, even projects alongside one another. But it also includes waste. We waste time with the people that we love. A mature life of prayer includes taking Jesus seriously on all his promises to prayer and the empowerment that he offers us through prayer and it includes wasting time in his company because we waste time with those that we love. And even if revival never comes and there isn't some great awakening in the city of Portland and no one's making a documentary one day about all that God did through this ragtag band of disciples in this one church called Bridgetown, wasting my whole life on Jesus is never a waste. Henry Nowen says, prayer does not mean much when we undertake it only as an attempt to influence God, or as a search for a spiritual fallout shelter, or as an offering of comfort in stress-filled times. Prayer is the act by which we divest ourselves of all false belongings and become free to belong to God and God alone. So before prayer is about power or outcomes or heavenly armies and a righteous uprising, prayer is about love. It's the way that we freely choose the one who freely chose us first. It's the way that we express ourselves to the God who in spite of everything delights in us. It's the way that we receive from the God who's got endless stamina to offer himself to a bunch of people who prefer self-sufficiency, tight jaws, and clenched fists most of the time. Jesus lived a daily prayer rhythm in a world without iPhones or email, a world that didn't even have clocks. And what that means is that for Jesus and his followers, Prayer was the way that time was measured. Everything happened a certain time before prayer or a certain time after prayer. It was prayer that set the rhythm and the passage of time in their lives. What anchors your day right now? How do you mark the passage of time? Could be by the push notifications on your phone or the emails in your inbox or the crossing off of tasks on your to-do list. It could be by counting hours till the evening or counting days till the weekend or crossing off dates until that next vacation that you cannot wait for. 
but something marks the passage of time. And whatever that is, you owe it to yourself to sort it out because whatever that thing is that is marking the passage of time in your life, it is holding your attention and your affection and therefore it is shaping you into its image. Communion with God was at the center of the life of his earliest followers, marking the passage of time. We get the English word hour from the Latin aura, which means more than just a unit of measured time. You know, we think and interact with time less in terms of mathematical units and more in terms of seasons. We think about the cold of, and death of the winter and about the reawakening and life of the spring and about the rest and ease and comfort of the summer and about the new beginning that that first like, crisp fall day seems to bring. This is how we interact with time and that's what's bound up in the Latin word aura. Not just the passage of time, but our interaction with time's passage and what that passage is doing to me and who it's forming me into as the days tick by. David Steindl Rast calls it not just a time measure, but a soul measure. So what if at the center of your every day, you placed communion with the God who personifies love? What if the waking thoughts of your morning were spent dreaming with God, dreams as big as kingdom come and as ordinary as daily bread? And what if you slipped away at midday for a few minutes or a few seconds because every other force is vying for your attention but only Jesus has your heart? And what if he could remind you of who you are mid-work day when there's so many other voices that want to speak definition into you? And what if you spent your commute home or the final moments before you fell asleep at night recounting the magnificent and minuscule things that you have to be grateful to him for today? What if your day belonged to the God who, who, who loves you without needing to control you? And the God whose chief concern is your greatest well-being, the God who is shaping you into the very best version of yourself, who's picking up all the shattered pieces of who you are and piecing back together the true self that he made you at first. What if fidelity to Jesus is everything and the way we choose it is as ordinary and as simple as prayer? So look, this isn't an innovative idea and it's not a barking call to a more rote, ritualistic, monastic kind of prayer life. This is a quiet rebellion. It's a free choice to live my life by a different order of loves and to choose Jesus as the center. So then the question is, how do we live it? How do we put that idea into practice? Through this Bridgetown daily prayer rhythm. So beginning today and then moving forward as core to the life of Bridgetown Church is a vision for fidelity. Ordering your life individually and our life communally according to a three-part morning, midday, and evening prayer rhythm inspired by the earliest church. In the morning, begin to pray the Lord's Prayer. Just start your day in conversation with God. That simple uh, practice isn't about personality type or discipline, it's just about love. I'm yet to find any man or woman throughout history who, who made a significant mark on the kingdom of God who did not begin the opening movements of their day in communion with Jesus. Mark 135 says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I'll never forget reading that verse as a 14-year-old kid and, and just having the simplest revelation, I wanna pray like Jesus prayed. And so I began just to set my alarm 15 minutes earlier than I had to to get to school on time. I'm talking 15 minutes, that's it. And, and I would open my Bible at night to Mark chapter one and then lay it across the top of my alarm clock so that in the morning, you know, when eh, 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 when that started happening and all of my adolescent whatever took over and I was just searching for the snooze, that my hand would fall on top of the open pages of scripture. And I remembered early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus awoke, went off into the wilderness to pray. Because beneath this surface level desire for a few minutes of sleep was a deeper desire to know the Father like Jesus did. And if you want the life of Jesus, you have to practice the lifestyle of Jesus. So I began very imperfectly and in fits and starts as a 14 year old kid to try to put that into practice in some way. And that simple habit was the beginning of a, of a life of prayer that became deeply personal, wildly adventurous and wondrously awe inducing. And I'm still somewhere in the early stages of today. 
So whatever your morning routine, I just wanna humbly suggest this new ambition or slight adjustment or addition. Pray like Jesus taught us. Every morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. And when I say that, I don't mean recite the Lord's Prayer from memory. I mean allow the themes or the movements of the Lord's Prayer to catapult you into themes or movements of prayer. I'm talking about things like, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just start by remembering who you're talking to. God is the one who is relentless in love, whose mercy always outruns his anger. He's the one victorious in this world so I can live today without fear. He is my Father who knows me by grace and he's our Father and that turns everyone I interact with today into brother or sister. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then begin to think about friends outside of relationship with Jesus and uh, about needs for healing or, or some type of provision in your family or your friendships. Uh, begin to think about those in need of, of mercy and those uh, broken systems of justice that need to be overturned in our city. Anywhere and everywhere that you can think of that God's kingdom of love and peace is lacking, begin to ask for it to come. And then proceed like this. I can keep going, but you got it. So then we jump down to midday prayer. Pray for the lost. I would love if you would just indulge me for just a moment and just try to imagine yourself, to see yourself mid-workday. Whatever that means for you, if it means sitting at a desk or driving a truck or running an open house or caring for patients or calming a classroom, raising children, whatever it means for you to be mid-workday. Just see yourself there at the midpoint of your day. And now just imagine, what if you could escape the flow of the workday just for a minute or two? And that could be a minute of contemplative silence at your desk, it could be a walk around the office building outside, it could be an escape into a holy stall in the company restroom, or it could be like, like uh, John and Charles Wesley's mother, just putting a blanket over your head so your kids can't talk to you for a second. <laughs> You're escaping because you know a secret. You know this kingdom that everyone else is so feverishly building, the one that they're willing their, their brains and their bodies into productive focus for another hour or two to build, it's not the one that will last forever. And it's not the one that will deeply satisfy. You're escaping because you know that secret and you're escaping because if you don't, you'll forget that secret. You'll start to believe that you're the sum total of all you're doing and producing that whatever it is that you put your hands to is what is most defining about you, that, that the kingdom that you spend most of the day building is the one that will last forever. That's why we pause to pray at midday. So how might your afternoon become different if you stopped every day right in the middle of the workday for two minutes just to say, Jesus, you're the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Jesus, I'm surrounded by people that you are compassionately pursuing even now. And so Jesus, would you go after those in my life? And you just began to name them Noah and Melanie and Jamal and Sanvi and, and Jesus, would you make my heart like yours so that I overflow with that kind of compassion? Would you send me even in response to my own prayers? What if? At the very moment in the day when you're most tempted to turn inward, you intentionally turned outward. How might that reshape you over days and weeks and months and years? How might it reshape the place that you call a workplace? What stories might you inherit from a simple two-minute practice? And then in the evening, pray gratitude. In my experience, we tend to litter our homes with the leftovers from our day, not because we want to, but we do. So what if instead of spending your commute home like stewing over that one unpleasant conversation or wishing that you had gotten to, to, to a few more things today or already rehearsing how you're gonna handle that thing tomorrow, you began to spend the day, whether that's you finding a seat on the max or gripping your steering wheel or pedaling your bike, you just began to recount your day with God, telling him all the ways that you encountered his presence and you recognized his blessing today, even recognizing the ways that his blessing was right in front of you and, and you overlooked it. You began to savor the blessings of God throughout your day. And then what might it mean for you to begin to litter your home with the fruit of the Spirit rather than the leftovers of the day? Morris West says there's a certain point in the spiritual journey when our prayer vocabulary gets summarized to just three phrases. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
So look, I'm not trying to invite you to some new idea. I'm trying to invite you into the most ancient of ideas, to pray the way that Jesus prayed, to pray the way that those who got closest to him kept on praying, to pray the way the church prayed at first, and to pray the way the church has tragically forgotten. But I wanna make sure that we do more than just empower you to do this, we want you to be equipped to do this. So to that end, I wanna introduce you to a couple of tools to equip you for this journey ahead. First, of course, Everything we do around here runs through Bridgetown communities. So community guides will take us from uh, as scattered churches around tables all throughout Portland through each of these rhythms in the days to come. But secondly, we've partnered with 24-7 Prayer to create an app called Inner Room, which uh, guides, includes guides to lead you through these three daily rhythms I've just mentioned, both in written and audio form. So if you want, you just pop some headphones in, listen to some cigarosi music, and hear someone's soothing voice guide you through the very things I've just described. You can set reminders on it for what is morning, midday, and evening for you that would prompt you, reminding you to pray these prayers and begin to cultivate a habit. There's even reach practices available if you wanna go deeper into one of these rhythms in particular. Um, I, I had the privilege of writing the content for this. The team behind Lectio 365, if you're familiar with that app, developed the app, and it is available right now in both the App Store and on Google Play. Now look, our, our vision is prayer. This app is just a tool. So my encouragement would be download it on your device today and use this app daily at least through the end of this calendar year. Because whenever you're exploring new ground, it's always advisable to go with a guide at first. And when you know this ground, as well as the back of your hand, then feel free to make it your own and find your own route through. But go with a guide until you know it that way. Now secondly, in addition to this, there's, a, there's, uh, there's that individual practice, but then there's a communal expression of the same thing as well. Beginning this Tuesday and proceeding every Tuesday for eight weeks, we're inviting you to prayer hubs, which is simply 10 locations scattered throughout the city of Portland meeting on Tuesday mornings, and we're gonna pray the Lord's Prayer together. We're gonna practice this rhythm once a week in the morning together. And all of those meetings are on Tuesdays, but they all, they take place at all different times in the morning in an attempt to make this accessible to corporate workers and stay-at-home parents and hourly employees and students and freelance designers, anyone and everyone, whatever your morning routine may be, a way that you can fit this into your ordinary rhythm. But why on earth do we need to pray the Tuesday morning rhythm together? I mean, why select just a little bit of this and make it a communal practice instead of an individual one? Well, mostly, honestly, because I ran this marathon one time in my life, and I can truly remember crossing the finish line of the marathon, absolutely exhausted, and thinking, the pain is but a moment, but the sermon illustrations <laughs> will last for a lifetime. So, if you were to Google marathon training, you're gonna find plenty of research about the benefits of training in a group. In fact, many would argue that training in a group is the most effective thing you could do to ensure that you cross the finish line on race, race day. If you Googled 5K training, you'll find a whole lot less research about training in a group. And that's because the longer the race, the more important community becomes. Now we talk a whole lot about training versus trying around here when it comes to spiritual formation. Uh, right, trying harder is not a sufficient resource to form you into the way of Jesus because willpower is a depleting resource. Practices or training is a better method. And in the same way, the longer the race, the more training together becomes. Uh, becoming a people of prayer is a marathon, not a sprint. This is a long race toward love and maturity and power. And it's one that will involve stretches of euphoria and fun and stretches of labor where you just keep moving. And to run this race, we're gonna need each other. So beginning runners and career marathon runners, they all train in groups because it's so much easier to procrastinate, to snooze, to justify, to drift back into old patterns and habits without the accountability and support of a community. We have been formed in a certain way of ordering our lives. So if we're going to be counterformed to order our lives around communion with God, it's gonna involve intention and it's gonna involve linking our arms with one another. And so I would just humbly say this, that if we don't train together, you don't stand a chance. So that's why as a temporary initiative alongside this daily prayer rhythm, we are launching prayer hubs beginning this coming Tuesday. 
Because if we want to order our lives uh, according to rebellious fidelity to Jesus, we got to do this together. So now I just want to ask, are you in? All right. That felt like potentially 40% of the room has given me a firm maybe. I love it. Now, both the inner room app and everything that you need to know about prayer hubs is available right now at bridgetown.church slash prayer. Hear me on this. This is not a slick idea. It's not a new initiative. I'm advocating for a way of prayer that's ancient. It's less like, look, I've dug this well for us to drink from, and it's more like what Isaac said after the death of Abraham, that he's redigging the wells that the Philistines filled. So what I want you to hear me saying is that I came across this ancient well and it was all caked over with debris and dust and I cleared it off only to discover there's living water in this thing. And I'm trying to say, come and drink. I've lived my life by this kind of rhythm for the past five years because when I discovered that it was written into the history of the church, I just said, I want to know Jesus like they knew Jesus. I wonder if there's water still in this well, and there is. And I want you to hear me say that this is not just me, that we as a staff at this church, as a team, have ordered our office around this rhythm. We've ordered our personal lives around this rhythm. We've been drawing from this ancient well so that we can say to you together today, there's living water here, would you come and drink? A daily prayer rhythm is not a fast track to revival. It's not a hocus pocus solution to drum up something powerful. It is a pathway to rebellious fidelity, to love expressed through prayer. So this is an invitation to love. And every relationship of substance is one that involves equal parts rhythm and spontaneity. Uh, a deep friendship, a significant other, a parent-child relationship. It has to involve breakthrough memorable moments. And it has to involve rhythm. A regular date night with your spouse, a, a weekly coffee meeting with that friend, an annual trip with the college buddies, a Saturday morning pancake routine with your kids, a community that keeps gathering around the same table week after week, in season and out of season. Most of our prayer lives are built on spontaneity without rhythm, which is only tragic because it keeps us in the shallow end of love. Jesus promises his love to you, his fidelity, he says it's enough to remove your shame, to restore your identity, to free you from your past, to rewire your patterns, to, to restore your emotions, to gather up the shattered pieces of you into a remade whole. How do I remain in that love? How do I remain in that love when my life is so filled with unexpected interruptions and demands and agenda items on my time? When I occasionally get inspired by it, but most of the time I'm just living the, in the long slog of ordinary days, and when my life is often pierced with grief or pain or any kind of unexpected interruption that doesn't seem to square with that love, how do I remain in that love, Jesus? Prayer. A rhythm of fidelity in prayer. Because all the days, weeks, and years between breakthroughs, that's when love is won and lost. So Bridgetown Church, may you remain in his love.